Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. Season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s, is supported by Tension Climbing. Wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Climbing has never been solely about, and no climber has ever explored their own limits by focusing only on the difficulty of the moves or the grade associated with that difficulty. Instead, there's something deeper that unlocks the ability to do the hardest things you're capable of. Things that may not carry the numerical weight commensurate with the effort required. And so, when a great climber finds a relatively low-graded oddity that they just can't seem to do, they don't avoid it. They lean in. Sure, they can go through the entire range of emotions, excitement, progress, but also frustration at watching other people do it easily. Because climbing is, well, hard. And when we get better, we continue to seek harder. And that's why on September 19th, 2019, after having fallen off of his crux, which wasn't the crux for everyone else, more than 50 times previous, Tension Climbing founder Will Anglin sat at the starting holds of Top Notch in Rocky Mountain National Park with mixed feelings. He'd realized he had taught himself all of the ways to do the dyno slightly wrong, and he'd made a conscious effort to undo that learning. But undoing learning is tricky business, often leaving you unsure of which direction you're even headed. But he pulled on anyway, and fell straight away, at the moves he'd done damn near every time, using multiple methods. After four more false starts, he thought, Maybe it's just not my day. And here, right here, is where many of us pack it in. But it wasn't Will's day for that either. Instead, he pulled on once more, this time eking his way through the start moves, everyone else's crux, and let all of his learning, unlearning, and relearning do its work. And he stuck the hold. See, ego is affected by numbers. But true pride isn't. It's anchored in another place entirely. And so, while top notch at V13 isn't Will's most numerically difficult send, it certainly sits among his most proud. Will Anglin, welcome to Written in Stone. I'm so psyched to have you here chatting about Fred Nicole. Thanks for having me. Man, before we dive in, I have a question for you that while I was preparing for this conversation, I kept wondering. Uh, your style is similar to Fred's in the way that you both exhibit a high level of control in difficult positions. 
I think that's one of the hallmarks of your climbing. Um, if you and Fred were both up for a role in a Disney live action movie where you had to play a sloth, who's going to get the role? You or Fred? Oh my gosh, Fred, for sure. <laughs> I, was, I, I really just want to see fred as a sloth that's my whole goal in life now he takes it to another level for sure for me i think i get close to controlling a position and then can end up kind of coasting through part of it mm. with a momentum element yeah i was just watching uh the video of fred doing shoshaloza mm-hmm. the first ascent in rocklands and he just does it like nobody does it. So, yeah. so, so slow. Complete control. It's so rare to see people climb like that. Actually, um, Twig climbs like that. Mm, yeah, totally. Totally. He's one of the only other people I have seen actually climb like Fred climbs. And it's it's really cool see yeah it's such a it's such a singular thing like i remember watching early videos and was just entranced by how he controlled every single aspect of every move it was wild and it wasn't until a lot later actually that i connected a lot of dots with fred because i had this idea that like fred was always like super calm and ethereal and chill when he climbed because that's what his style sort of evokes, you know? But then you you see a photo, like, and as I became a better climber, I saw this photo in a new light. And the one I'm talking about is a Sandra Studer photo of Fred on Alma Blanca, which I, I think you've done, right? <laughs> and in that photo, he's like, super fierce determination on his face and he's setting up for that big like cross move and he's in this tiny little box that he's going to have to explode out of and you know using the word explode with fred means something totally (laughs) different than everyone else but that changed my mind about bouldering like i thought bouldering was because of seeing fred i thought bouldering was this super controlled like bear down on everything, but don't let your face show it, you know? And Chris Sharma was the opposite of that. And then I saw finally, oh, Fred's got this fierceness and, you know, Fred can go really hard and he can get in tiny box and explode it out of them. And it's, he just changed my mind about it all multiple times. Yeah. He's definitely given it, even though it might not look like it. And it's funny, sometimes you you see climbers like that and it looks at least when you're looking at them from the back because they're climbing something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like they're slow and composed. And then all of a sudden they something happens and they fall and they just go flying off the wall. Like, mm-hmm. holy cow, that was a lot of force. It did not look like they were that they were doing that. But uh, like the actual force they're applying to the wall is really, really high. They're trying really hard. Yeah, they're just wound up like a spring on there. And any any release is going to just result in major explosion. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's so cool. I think there, you know, besides just Fred's style, there are a lot of ways that we can be inspired by what he brought to climbing. What are the top ways that he's informed the way you approach climbing? 
Yeah, the, this is an interesting question because there's been a lot of different climbers over the history of climbing that have had these kinds of impacts. Totally. And I think the thing that is so interesting to me about Fred is how not just the difficulty of the climbing, which that's kind of the obvious thing to point to the first person to do B13, B14, and B15, which is such a huge leap in difficulty from where yeah. it was at that time. And he had contemporaries who uh, were also pushing the limits at that time as well. But it's the kind of the climbs that he chose, what he actually mm. chose to climb on, what those boulders looked like, what those moves were. And I think that almost more than the difficulty is kind of the impact that he's had moving forward is in a very real way, kind of what bouldering looks like today mm. can really be attributed somewhat back to like one person. And that's Fred, whether it's the climbs that he did in, in Switzerland or Waco tanks or Rocklands you know, the, like I said, the difficulty was there, but the aesthetic of the line or the lack of aesthetic, uh, yeah. depending on what, what that line was. And even just listening, uh, to interviews with him or things where he's talking about the climbing and the feeling that he seems to be going for is something that I find really interesting and and inspiring and something that I've kind of tried to embody myself in some way of trying to find what that feeling is that I'm looking for and and figuring out what what pieces of rock <laughs> can facilitate mm. that and it's not always the prettiest thing um but sometimes it is so yeah just I think I think what he chose to climb on is, is really interesting. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, this is something I've talked with several people about. Like I, I had this conversation with Eric Jerome and Max Olatukin a couple of years ago. And just recently I interviewed Adam Ondra for this season of Written in Stone. And we were talking about how a climb can have basically three things. It can have, um, the, the beautiful line, um, the, it can climb really well and it can have world-class difficulty and to find one that has all three is really, really special, but you don't need all three to be inspired by it. And I think Adam Under is a great example of this and that he goes and does these like, if, I mean, for lack of a better term off the top of my head, these little bullshit roots and boulders that no one else wants to climb on but he gets psyched on them and he does them and it might only have one of those factors. Um, yeah. And it seems like Fred did that as well because a lot of the things he climbed in Waco, you walk up to them and you're like, Oh, this is a Fred Nicole boulder. Wait a minute. This doesn't look that cool. You know? <laughs> but he applied himself to it in the same way he applied himself to dream time, which I, I think is really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I something I've been thinking about recently is is self-expression and climbing and it's something that's 
become more valuable to me through the years. And I think it's, it's something that's really apparent in Fred's climbing mm. and those climbing choices. In climbing, we, we have a lot of freedom, but in a lot of ways, we're constrained. You can't do yeah. whatever you want. You kind of have to do what the rock's telling you to do. And, and we also have a lot of rules swirling around in our head all the time, especially bouldering. Oh, There's yeah. like, where do you start? Where do you finish? What, what moves do you do in between? And does that count? You know? Exactly. But one of the things that we definitely can choose is what we climb on. And mm -hmm. from a development perspective, that's expanded where it's you're walking through a boulder field and just whatever happens to catch your eye or makes you feel a certain way or gets you excited. That's that can be a form of of self-expression. I think that's something that we see a lot of the great and kind of influential climbers do yeah. the stuff Dave sees is stuff that nobody else sees. And the stuff that right. Fred saw at the time is stuff that no one else was really looking at. And now it seems so obvious when you walk up to a wall in Waco and there's all these little thin like ear comes are like, Oh yeah, that's a boulder problem that goes. But previous to Fred just brick housing those things, it, right. it wasn't, it wasn't a part of, the conception of like the greater climbing community as much as it is now, certainly. Yeah. And you know, this episode in particular is about, uh, LaDance and Raja, which I think are an interesting, um, comparison because they're on the same boulder. They share some moves. One of them is clearly a like straight up line that tops out the boulder the other is a traverse that just goes across the boulder. And a lot of people nowadays sort of shit on traverses, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're, they're not as valid or whatever as a, a straight up line. And Fred just didn't seem to care. I mean, I can't confirm what he did on the first ascent or I haven't been able to yet. I'm still trying. Um, but in the video of his repeat that Udo Newman has out there, uh, his repeat of LaDance, he just steps off. He doesn't top out. And I don't know if he topped that boulder out for his first ascent. So I think it's really interesting that he did the traverse first. He was really inspired by traverses. It's what he trained on. It's what he get, first got excited about in climbing. And then he finds this traverse that turns out to be the first V13 in the world. And I think that sets him up for doing Raja. So there's importance in those like lines that we sometimes shit on a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I think the, I mean, a lot of the early bouldering was traversing and there's yeah. a whole kind of separate way of grading traverses. And I think these days, and, and it may even be able to be attributed somewhat to kind of the, uh, development of the bouldering pad, you know, mm, A totally. actually being able to go up there and not break your legs <laughs> probably mm -hmm. influenced people to actually go up there. And prior to that, uh, you know, climbing 15 feet and hitting rocks probably wasn't on folks list of things to do. So I think it's 
it's a culture thing now where it's not as much what folks are looking for. It doesn't seem as quote unquote proud to do a traverse. And I think that that's in some ways pretty reasonable, you know, like a traverse doesn't Mm -hmm. look that sweet. Some of them do. Some of them are actually like really cool. But yeah, it's it's interesting how all the different factors that come into play that sort of shape the taste and what what people think is cool or or worth time. I mean, a lot of the firsts and there are a lot of hard things that are like full on contrivances uh, yeah, okay. that don't look cool at all, aren't comfortable, uh, don't climb well. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. see what the worst stuff. But a lot of times. Uh, it's, I mean, I think with bouldering it, the act of doing it, at least for me is kind of the point as opposed to that actual rock, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's, that leaves more space for things like that. It doesn't really have to look sweet. It doesn't have to be quote unquote proud. It doesn't necessarily even have to top out. There are some sweet drop-offs in the world. Yeah. And I think it's, it's definitely, it's more to do with your experience on the thing and what that means to you and whether you're enjoying yourself or not. Yeah. I think that that actually, I mean, we could just stop the podcast right there and be like, yeah, that that's <laughs> all of it. That's the whole experience right there. Um, but I do think, you know, we, we tend to heap praise on these historical figures. Um, like Fred and, um, and then we go back and look at the history and we've sort of written this revisionist history about these figures, you know, like John Gill was a boulder. He didn't top rope. Well, yes, he did. He top roped a lot of the boulders he did. And Fred didn't fully top out a lot of the boulders. He still gets credit for doing, even though people top, top them out now. And I think that's totally fine. We just tend to write this revisionist history based on our current culture and and what we value. And I think Fred is a really fabulous lesson in in what we should be valuing. And I think you're right on that it's the the experience and that the rock isn't necessarily the thing that allows you to have that experience. That's you. You're just yeah. choosing the rock you're going to display that on. Yeah, it's like the the boulder isn't the bouldering. You're the bouldering. <laughs> the boulder's yeah, the boulder. Wow, you're the bouldering. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, we can't talk about bouldering. We can't talk about Fred. I mean, we've already brought up grades because he was so instrumental in pushing the level of bouldering up dramatically he was also one of the best at like walking the line between using grades and caring about them but then not putting too much weight on them um like you know after fred i think the next like big boom in bouldering um was partly chris sharma and sharma very famously refused to grade a lot of things you know, in my opinion, that's, that's caring about grades even more because now you're like giving them this power. Fred would give a grade and move on. 
how do you think we can continue to use grades responsibly? And <laughs> I know that's a giant question. It's it's one of my favorite ones though, which is is kind of ironic in some ways. Uh, it's in many ways it's the least consequential part of the whole deal. It's the thing that Absolutely. matters the least. Um, but it it is also one of my favorite things to talk about. And I I've held different opinions over the years. And I think where I'm at now uh, is just do your best to give your honest opinion and then just move to the, to the Fred example, just move on because it's not really on you as an individual to get it quote unquote, right. You just need to give the best representation of what your experience was and if everybody focused on doing that and that only then consensus could could almost work where now it it's really tough because there are so many incentive structures built into the way that we Mm. interact with grades and climbing that it's tough to understand if the opinion you're getting of the grade is really what that person feels or not. And that just sort of skews everything over time. And, and I think people are, are just so hell bent on comparing themselves to other people. Mm -hmm. And that can just, and there's, I will say there's nothing wrong with that. That's, I mean, it's competition. We, it's there's some it's there's some big positives to comparison. Yeah, there's it. It's not inherently bad, but it does inherently carry some some baggage along with it. And to to not to not come to terms with that, I think you know it makes us it makes us miss things. Yeah, I think, you know, you just, you sort of hinted at something there talking about how the whole grading scale can be thrown off and consensus can be thrown off because you never know if you're getting an honest opinion. And I've seen this trend lately in the last couple of years where a a pro climber will do something and then they will openly say, I'm scared to call it this grade. Like, I think it might be that grade, but I don't have the courage. I think Adam Alder actually wrote in a comment on 8A, I don't have the courage to call it the next grade. Um, We've seen uh, either Stefano or Seb Buen, I can't remember which, saying, I think it's probably this, but I don't want it to get downgraded. So I'm going to call it this. Why is why are we so concerned about the downgrade? Why do we see that as such a huge negative against the person who did it? Yeah, that's that's interesting and it's and I don't know you know I'm in my my mid 30s. I haven't been around that long. So I'm not sure how <laughs> how far all this goes back, but it the climbing community is is really interesting in that it 
it seems to be pretty quick to attack. <laughs> yeah. And and I don't I don't totally know why that is, but it's interesting to me that downgrading is seems like such a uh, a negative thing. And it's like if if something gets one downgrade, everyone automatically assumes that it's that easier grade. But if somebody gives it yeah. one upgrade, yeah. nobody ever assumes that it's that upgraded grade. Right. And so it's kind of like a race to the bottom. And I think I think I mean it's it seems fairly obvious to me that there's a significant ego component where like sure. you know, saying, Oh well, be. this this felt easy to me making me better than you kind of a thing. And what's crazy about that to me is that like climbing is so variable. Everyone's body is so different. The beta on some climbs can be almost unrecognizable, like person to person, depending on their size and shape and strengths and weaknesses. And, Mm -hmm. and to, to really come out and be like, no, what I like, my experience is like the pinnacle of validity and you know, what I say it goes kind of thing Mm -hmm. is, is an odd position to take for something that, that is so subjective and variable. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, when I do things, I'll, I'll downgrade them or upgrade them or take the grade or, I just try these days to try to make the grade that I take as honest of a reflection of the experience that I had as I can, which is also flawed because my perception changes over time. Am I in shape? Am I not in shape? Is this a style I'm good at or bad at or whatever? Um, But just making an effort, you know? Yeah, I I think... I think that's a really great way to go about it, you know, give your honest reflection of it. And I think if you're doing that, you have to recognize that if someone else gives their honest reflection and it's a grade lower than what you believed it was, that's not a a negative reflection on you. That's just a reflection on how they found that rock climb. You know, I think we tend to take these downgrades personal and lots of Fred's firsts have been, or or at least his early climbs have been downgraded. And I hear some people like have a hard time saying this Fred Nicole Boulder is easier than the grade he gave it. Even though like our technology has changed dramatically, our techniques have changed dramatically, uh, our ability to see 40 different send videos and get all the beta has made it easier for us to climb these boulders. Um, Crash pads, like you said, you know, we might roll up to a boulder with a posse that's got 25 crash pads between the group. And it's basically become a gym floor where Fred had one little pad or something, you know. So we tend to put too much weight on that history and on the grade that other people found them, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, an, an interesting example is is Dreamtime, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. You put it up as V15 and then it, it broke. 
like pretty catastrophically. Uh, it's super, super different, uh, the crux move than, than it used to be. And the crux move is harder than it mm. used to be, but it still is often, uh, folks will call it V14. And I think that's an kind of illuminates what the influence of climbing gyms has been and the ability to explore movement in a more controlled environment and then to apply that outside. Because when Fred originally did that, climbing gyms were not what they are today. They existed. (laughs) But even (laughs) even the style in those gyms was, I mean, if you put somebody today in one of those gyms, they would be like, what? It's like, this is horrible. Why would I even (laughs) want to be in here? This is crazy. and now the the level at which that kind of dynamic style has grown, things that used to seem hard potentially because of a lack of experience in that kind of movement because it wasn't really being explored in the same way at the time. Mm-hmm. Those big jumps felt really hard, probably. <laughs> like I, I mean, they still feel hard to me. I think that thing's nails, but. Uh, just the level of the climbing community as a whole has risen across all these different aspects that in the late 90s, early 2000s, just weren't a part of what people's climbing vocabulary was. And so it makes sense that certain things today don't seem as hard as they did prior. Totally. And I mean, when you're jumping in slow motion, like Fred, like you're in the matrix or something, <laughs> um, it, it gets its own grading scale anyway. Yeah. Watching him do some of the stuff, uh, like Chablanc in, in mm-hmm. Waco, uh, like the way that he did it, like just so slow off of that pinch I mean, if, if I had to do it that way, if, if somehow climbing were, you know, maybe like more like gymnastics or ice skating and that mm-hmm. exact way that you performed the move was a part of how you were, you know, successful or not, yep. uh, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> totally. Uh, it's, and it's, and I think that's cool that we can all sort of find different solutions and something that feels just totally heinous to one person for one reason or another can feel not so bad to somebody else. And, you know, that's, that actually, I think makes climbing more interesting, not less interesting. Oh, I do too. I do too. Absolutely. Um, you brought up dream time and dream time is in the same lineage as, uh, LaDance and Raja. Uh, V13, V14, V15, first in the world. And there's this constant argument in climbing um, about which climbs were the first of a grade. Like we we hold those in the spotlight. Like this mm-hmm. was the first. And in my research for this season, what I'm discovering is there's lots of debate because there were several climbers all kind of getting there at once. And I can see the historical interest in that argument of which actually was the first. Again, though, we're coming back to a, a subjective thing like a grade. So how can you say which one was objectively the first? 
But I also just feel like we're getting that conversation wrong in a lot of ways by putting so much emphasis on which climb was the first and not which group of climbs and climbers were the ones pushing that barrier forward. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I think it, in some ways, falls back to the, the grading conversation we were just having where, like, it is subjective, you know? So it's really tough to say who did the first of what grade because somebody could think it's not that great or a whole group of people could think it's not that great. And so at what point is it or is it not that thing? And Right and who did it first. And, and even, you know, as I was thinking about this question, uh, like, well, maybe it makes more sense to think about who was the first to do a climb because that's a little bit Mm -hmm. more definable. Right. But even Mm -hmm. then stuff breaks all the time, stuff polishes. Uh, I mean, the climate in certain places is significantly different than it was, uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, the shoes that people were wearing, whether they had chalk or not, whether they had crap, it's, it's the whole, like, can't step in the same river twice thing. It's really, it's really tough to define, you know, what these quote unquote first accomplishments are. And, and I think it is, like you said, a, a bit of a red herring. Like when I think about Fred or someone like, Joe Soon or Dave Graham. I'm not, I don't necessarily, the first thing I think about isn't, oh, well, this person did the first 14 B, C, and D or, or whatever. It's, it's often them more as like a mythic figure. I think it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it, and in some ways we don't have as many mythic figures as, as we did just because everything is, in some ways a little bit more transparent than it used to be. You see For accomplishments sure. like in real time on Instagram where we just watched Jakob Schubert send maybe the hardest route in the world yeah. live. Live. You know, right. So like there's no it doesn't really leave room for a legend <laughs> about it. Totally. True or not. Um and so when I think about people like Fred, it's like a it's more like a feeling of like this mythical creature who just you know pushed the boundaries of the sport you know not and it's less important to describe how granular it was that he pushed it just the fact that he you know put modern hard bouldering kind of on the map waco rocklands switzerland uh it's that stuff. And then you can argue all you want about what those climbs are graded and whatever. And, but you know, the reality is lost to time at this point, probably. Yeah. (laughs) I think one of the most, yeah, for sure. I think one of the most interesting things about it is like, if we look at say the four minute mile barrier, um, lots of people were getting close and then Roger Bannister just happens to be the first to to cross that barrier. And then it happens several more times uh, pretty quickly. And I think with something even more subjective, like the grade of a boulder, 
it takes someone with, you know, to use Adam Ondra's word, the courage to say, this is the next level for other climbers to be able to say, okay, now that level is available to us. So now we can start saying, yes, this is that level. When before, maybe some of them didn't have that courage to say it. So it just takes one person to like push the level up uh, in the like, in the feeling, in the thoughts of the top, the other top climbers, and then they can all sort of fill in the spaces. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about this. Like Fred opened up V13, V14, V15. He didn't open it up for Fred. He opened it up for climbing. Whether those boulders stand as the first of that grade for the people who want to nitpick about, you know, what's what, isn't the point for me. The point is he opened it up in the like, in the thought process and in the experience for everyone else. Yeah, he he opened it up conceptually. Whether those climbs yeah. necessarily stand up to that kind of grade rigor over time is is irrelevant like full on uh and and it's also worth worth mentioning and i think you did earlier it doesn't happen in a vacuum either uh there are contemporaries uh that you know pushed fred and and anyone who's who's been a first you know maybe or maybe not in something has had people around them that have helped facilitate that in one form or another. Totally. Like when I was, when I was planning this season of written in stone, it was like, I'm going to choose 10 important ascents from that decade. But there are so many more people I want to talk about who don't come into play for those 10. And it was hard to whittle it down to 10. Like, how do we not talk about Clem Lascott mm-hmm. when we're talking about Fred? The, the two are inseparable in my mind because I'm looking at it now as this, there's this larger zeitgeist moving that barrier forward a little at a time, you know, and Clem did the second ascent of Raja and then very quickly followed up with his own V14 Nanook, uh, among many other things that he did that are, you know, we're moving the sport forward. So you're right. It, it doesn't happen in a vacuum and and I'm part of the problem by saying Fred gets the credit here, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard not to make a rule for yourself when you're talking about these things. Well, and I think we, we like that as people, you know, we like these legendary figures uh, and have forever. It's, what's painted on cave walls, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and whether, whether it's, whether it's quote unquote true or not, it's, it's what we latch onto. And it's a part of how we tell these stories, whether it's about the people themselves or how we contextualize ourselves within sort of the larger story of, of climbing. We point to these different figures as, guideposts maybe or or maybe they come to represent certain things that we as a community 
value and we kind of project that stuff onto these people, whether they were that way or not. <laughs> uh, totally. Kind of doesn't matter. And and I that is something I I miss about the way climbing and again I'm I'm pretty young, so it's kind of insane to say this, but the way <laughs> the way climbing was used you know, to be in the old it, days. It just it uh there's there's less room for for those those legends and it's i i really appreciate folks like uh you know like griffin whiteside mm. it, it's like you don't even know what he has or hasn't done but he's he's kind of a mythic figure at least out here in colorado i'm like well if griffin's been to this area i assume <laughs> that he's done all this stuff like maybe he did yeah. maybe he didn't sort of doesn't matter it's just fun yeah, I, I talked to Griffin once at a trade show and was like, I was like, man, I, I really want to do this this series on like the the dark horses, the mythic figures that you know that no one knows about. Would you be on the podcast? And he was like, Well, then I wouldn't be someone no one knows about anymore. <laughs> I was like, fuck, <laughs> you have a point. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I I think that's totally true that we we aren't leaving room for the legends the way they were. Um, I hadn't really thought about that before, uh, at least not in too much depth. But that is one of the things that make people like Fred and Clem and you know all of these these heroes that we hold up um, from back then so enticing. But you said something really interesting there that we we think we know what they were like. And you will hear people say, well, Fred did it this way, so that's how I'm going to do it too. When in a lot of cases, we have no idea how Fred did it. We're just assuming we know. And when I was watching the video of Fred doing la dance i was i was really surprised that he just casually drops in this knee bar um and i was like wow i just had no idea that knee bars were even a thing back then not to mention that he would just casually use it you know they're so hotly contested now but it, again this goes right back to like fred didn't really care he was just climbing for himself and to be climbing and looking for things that could move climbing forward. And maybe the rest of us weren't ready. I mean, we've got knees, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. I'm like, all for the record. I am all for knee bars. Yeah. Like we have feet. We put rubber on that. We've got knees. Yeah. Like why not put rubber on that? We're putting rubber on the like hand jams. Now, if, if putting rubber on our, fingertips help like we would be doing that we would do uh, it. yeah it's it is an interesting question about i mean me bars specifically uh and i think earlier on i was pretty disparaging about me bars and mm. as time's gone on i i can't quite figure out what i what i really thought my argument was <laughs> um, 
because like when I look at it now, I'm like, it's, it's a technique like any other thing that we've been doing as climbers the whole time in one form or another. The whole time. It's, yeah. it's certainly changed and, and the advent of like an actual usable, comfortable knee pad is in some sense relatively new. And so the application of that technique has has broadened uh, pretty quickly. And I think, again, to go back to the grade thing, I think it's something that uh, really hits a nerve for folks when things get downgraded because an e bar mm. is found or or especially in a case where a knee bar that maybe when the climb was originally graded wasn't possible due to the knee pad technology or something like right. that. And, yeah. you know, I mean, on one hand, that's that's understandable. And on the other hand, like all sorts of things change over time uh, that affect the grades and uh you know, knee barring is just another technique and another thing that makes climbing interesting. Another way to kind of turn your body into a puzzle piece for some chunk of rock. And there's also this misconception that knee barring is easy uh, yeah, totally. because in, in a lot of cases it will make a climb easier. Mm -hmm. But, and to be sure, there are some like, you know, lock in, take a nap kind of knee bars. And yes, that's easy. But at a lot of this, it's not easy. It's actually quite hard. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a technique that a person needs to develop in, along with any other climbing technique and, and to learn it enough to be able to apply it and, and to see it on things that have already been climbed without it that's just another it's just another cool thing i think yeah i was i was researching akira the the first first thing ever called 15b um mm -hmm. by fred rowling for this season and he mentions in an interview you know that when it was finally repeated there were all these tow hooks and bicycles and he's like try tow hooking in, you know, Boreal lasers or whatever from the early nineties, it doesn't work. You know, you're not going to, unless it's a bucket that you're tow hooking in, it's not the same, but now we have shoes that are covered in rubber specifically for tow hooking and open up a lot of options. I, I see that really similar to the knee pad actually. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. We're always, we're always trying to improve that, right? I mean, even even now, you're like, yeah, like the shoes are covered in rubber, and they kind of aren't. And I'm like, why not? <laughs> Just cover yeah. my foot in rubber, please. I, totally. I, it's not a not a climbing day goes by where I'm like, why is there not rubber here? This is insane. Who's designing <laughs> these things? Like, don't don't you understand? Like, we just want rubber <laughs> uh, everywhere. Put it everywhere. And it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It just, it just continues to unlock new things. And I yeah. think you can, you can choose to look at it uh, in a way where it's, you know, you, you could think that it's 
destroying all this stuff that's already previously been done or whatever. And it, you wouldn't be wrong, but that's kind of a, that's not that great of a way to look at it. In my opinion, I, I choose to look at it as something where it opens up all sorts of new possibilities for the future. And that's interesting. Yeah, evolution. Yeah. I, I want to wrap this up by, you know, asking, I think we've already sort of covered this, but asking what do you think is the, the most important thing Fred has contributed to climbing? And you've given me so many new things to think about. Um, number one, something you said just in a moment, and then you ran right by it was that we use these figures to contextualize ourselves. And that's really fantastic. I, I really do love the visual of having this like line of figures and, and using them to see where I'm at. Um, not just, you know, I, as soon as I say that, I'm like, Oh, everybody thinks I'm talking about grades. But that's <laughs> not it at all. You know, there's, there's style, there's approach, there's, there's all of these things that these figures, uh, all of the figures I'm talking about this season brought to climbing the courage to say, this is the next grade, the courage to say, I can do this, even though everyone thinks I can't. Um, those sorts of things are the way I use these figures to contextualize my own climbing experience. And I had never really thought about that until, until you said it. For me, that's maybe one of the most important things Fred has, has really contributed. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of hits the nail on the head. And, and was what I was going to, how I was going to answer that question of what is or what has been Fred's biggest contribution to climbing. And I, I think it's the legend, you know, mm. and the place that he sort of occupies in all of our minds and whether how accurate that is to the actual man is somewhat irrelevant. It's he's become a figure totally bigger than himself. And, you know, when I think about Fred, I just think about like a master in the woods, you know, <laughs> just doing his thing <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and not overly concerned with what anybody else might think of it. Just kind of pursuing what, drives him what excites him and you know what he just wants to do uh but bringing that kind of intensity and relentlessness to it that has allowed him to mm. push the difficulty as well and that's you know how true that is i don't know but it's that's the figure in my mind and that's kind of what i want to be you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's cool. Yeah. I, you know, I like that. Well, you know, in, in the lineage of climbing philosophers, uh, and I certainly put Fred in there, even though I don't know if he ever tried to be a philosopher of climbing, but I think the things he has done and said 
carry a lot of weight. Um, you know, in that lineage where where many people have depicted climbing as this entirely ethereal thing, um, I really believe that you are one of the most down to earth of climbing's philosophers who sees all sides of this this beautiful and at the same time sometimes soul crushing thing that we practice. Um, so I appreciate that, and I think you you are one of those figures. So, Oh man, that's really nice. Thanks. (laughs) Well, man, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to, to do this, to chat about Fred and for helping get this season of written in stone out into the world. Um, what you do at tension and what the whole team over there at tension does means a lot. I feel like you're, you're pushing climbing forward uh, in a similar way, just in a new age, uh, as what Fred was doing and as what all the legends we're talking about this season are doing. Uh, so I appreciate you guys uh, being on board with this season. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks for doing this and and thanks for having me on. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. And tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. Stoners, I missed you all. We didn't have any conversations at the, you know, through the whole back of last week. It feels like I haven't talked to you in a month. I don't miss things very often, but but I did miss sitting down here and talking to you all. Um, couple of things. Number one, Will Anglin is a fucking joy to talk to. Uh, he's just one of my one of the people I love to pontificate with? Am I using that word correctly? No, no, I am definitely not. I just looked it up and pontificate is on the annoying side or the dogmatic side. And that's the opposite. That's exactly the opposite of what Will does. It's more examining and theorizing or deliberating something to that effect. Anyway, he's one of my favorite people to sit down with and talk about the, or, you know, hike around the rocks with and talk, talk about the ideas and the ideals and um, just climbing philosophy in general. 
Uh, it's a good time. If you ever get the chance, you should absolutely do it. And also, tension is a big reason why this season of Written in Stone could happen. Uh, so please support those guys. Use the use the code STONE over there at tensionclimbing.com for 10% off. They make the best collection of training tools out there, period. Uh, I don't even need to say anything else about it, period. That's it. Also, another thing I've been thinking about, uh, Emily and Riley and I recently met um, to talk about YouTube. Do we want to take this thing onto YouTube? But ultimately, I don't know how we could keep the bar as high. Uh, there's not that much money in it. So if any of you out there have any great ideas about YouTube uh, or you're really good and really fast at animation, that would be cool too. Uh, hit me up. Let me know. Speaking of YouTube, I just finished watching a video that got me really psyched. Uh, if you're interested, I'm not a big YouTuber, but recently I've been working on a sport climbing project that's got me excited. I'm seeing little bits of progress on a, you know, anti-style, hard for me sport climb. And I just watched Tom O'Halloran's hump of trouble project video literally 30 seconds before i started recording this and it's brilliant it's vulnerable it shows the process probably better than any sport climbing video i've ever seen uh, pretty incredible uh, tom if you're listening thank you for that and all of you listening should definitely go check out that video on youtube and that's pretty much all I got for now. Um, we've got three conversations this week. This was number one. We've got two more. Uh, in two days, on Wednesday, is one of the best climbing journalists who's written about Fred before and has seen a lot of really brilliant climbers in his time up close and personal uh, he's also a podcaster, and if you're familiar with the old The Ledge podcast, you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, it's a good one. It's a fun one. I really enjoyed talking with him, and you will get to hear that on Wednesday. Then we got another one on Friday, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I will see you all in a couple of days.